Hello, everyone, to part two of our series on our discussion of homelessness in Lawrence. In part two, we are joined by a few representatives of local organizations that have as their mission to serve the needs of persons who find themselves uh, in, need of, in need of homes and in need of assistance in general. Uh, this is an important discussion as we determine just what is needed of our community to respond effectively to address our going, uh, growing homeless uh, population. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Mike Otteson. And with that, let's begin with introductions. Um, and as you introduce yourself, uh, if you would speak a little bit about what you, uh, you do and what your organization does. Um, and, and a little bit, I guess, about um, what has compelled you to do the work that you do for your organizations. Hello, thank you for the opportunity to be here. My name is Matthew Falk. I'm the Supportive Housing and Homeless Services Program Manager for the Burton Nash Community Mental Health Center. Uh, the Burton Nash Community Mental Health Center is a mental health provider, a Medicaid mental health provider for the county. Um, and so I manage the housing programs that we provide for mental health consumers. Our homeless outreach and homeless services are granted programs, so they're not restricted to only working with mental health consumers. So those are folks who work with anyone who's homeless in the community, and I work with those. Uh, I manage those programs. I started as an actual service provider. I've worked with the homeless population in Lawrence since 2005, starting in one of the homeless shelters at that time, and then moving over to Burton Ash as a as an outreach worker. Um, what brought me to this position uh, or to, the, to work in Lawrence is kind of a random uh, occurrence. I had gotten out of graduate school in the early 2000s and was visiting a friend of mine uh, who lived in Lawrence and I needed a job and handed out my resume at a homeless shelter and got a job. And uh, <laughs> um, I've been here ever since. Hi, Mike and David. My name is Dana Ortiz and I'm the Executive Director of Family Promise of Lawrence. Um, we've been open here in Lawrence uh, since 2008. Um, it's a... We, Family Promise is a national organization, and we're in over 200 cities in the U.S. So we have national support, and we can uh, can hone in our programming based on the specific um, needs in our community. So we've expanded a lot since we opened in 2008. We used to only be able to serve four families at a time. We have several different kinds of programming depending on who's placing the calls to us. That's how we've expanded based on the data we've collected in our local community. So now, right now we've got 29 families enrolled in programming and about 40 to 50 who are involved uh, in our graduate support stabilization programming once they're back housed. So I came to this work um, also a little uh, serendipitous like Matthew. Um, I've been volunteering 35 years ago with a family shelter in San Jose, California, um, and then came here for my husband to get his PhD at KU, and we never went back home. So this is home now. We love Lawrence. Um, I worked for years and years in business and pharmaceutical development. I'm a biochemist by training. So um, it's strange that I'm here, but, <laughs> but I've always volunteered um, with homeless uh, in the homeless issues situation uh, since I've been a young adult right out of college. So in, in many regards, this is coming home. I've been in this position about 10 years. Uh, my name is Daniel B. Smith, and I'm the Director of Volunteer Programs at United Way of Douglas County. Um, I'm relatively new into my position, but I've lived in Lawrence for a long time. Uh, United Way obviously covers a pretty broad spectrum of issues and supports a, a broad range of organizations. 
um, but a number of them um, interface with the homeless population um, and be basically as a response, trying to be adaptive to what the community sees um, as an urgent need. I feel like more recently we've really been focusing on the issue um, and we're looking to sort of uh, set up the community so it's better capable of, of handling it going forward. Um, I came into this line of work because I started as a volunteer. I, I never really imagined that I would be a nonprofit person. I went to KU for design, and then I started volunteering, and I loved volunteering. Then I started volunteer coordinating because it was easy to tell other people that I loved volunteering, and, and that's kind of how I am where I am now. Hi, I'm Leah Roslin, and I'm the VP of Community Impact at the United Way of Douglas County. And the United Way fights for the health, education, and financial stability of every person in Douglas County. Um, we really root ourselves in issues of poverty, serving people that are living in poverty or near poverty, um, as really the foundational or root issue to a lot of other negative outcomes that we see in terms of education or health, housing. Um, so we support um, nonprofit organizations in the area as well as um, drive systems change to change the conditions of people's lives that create poverty. Poverty is created by social conditions. Um, and so it's very important to serve people that are impacted, but also to try and make systems change um, to stop the cycle, the generational cycles of poverty that exist. Um, I came into this work, I started out actually my nonprofit uh, career at the Willow Domestic Violence Center. It was then known as Women's Transitional Care Services. Um, I got interested in the work because of my own lived experience growing up in a house with domestic violence. Um, my father has severe and persistent mental illness and has um, himself been homeless for over 20 years. Um, mainly because of his mental illness, um, which is a common, uh, which is a common denominator among people that are homeless, although not everybody. Um, I uh, grew up in Lawrence, got my undergrad at KU and moved to California and worked in community mental health. And um, when I came back, started at the United Way and again, really see poverty as sort of the root issue that's driving a lot of other negative community and individual outcomes. Um, so personally, it's something that I'm passionate about and professionally as well. So thank you for having us. Yeah, well, thank, thank you all for being here um, and being part of this conversation. Um, one thing I want to begin begin discussing, I guess, is, uh, and anyone can take this up, I think, um, is, I guess, start with, a, I guess, a general idea of uh, the history of homelessness in Lawrence, gen generally speaking, and then uh, moving, I guess, towards... Because um, I know there's been a lot of changes in just this year alone, I think, uh, from what from what I've been aware of, because uh, uh, so yeah, if we could like start start there. Uh, the history of homelessness in Lawrence, so far as I know, is not unlike the history of homelessness in our country generally. Um, I, in fact, when I very first started working here, the Lawrence Journal of the World used to run these 
throwback articles. They would take an article out of the past and run it. And that year they'd taken an article from the late 1800s. And the article literally read, Salvation Army is raising funds to help the homeless. Uh, local agencies are struggling with the issue. Uh, the community's gathering to talk about it and how to address the problem. So it read basically as an article that you might see today, right? Um, so that tells me that the, the history has really been here for a long time. Um, nationally, that history is one in which homelessness originally was more transient, uh, was smaller, and it was basically folks who were rural, uh, because most of the nation was rural, and a lot of people lived in barns and farmhouses, and they would do little odd jobs here from farm to farm. Um, mo in the modern time, the largest impact on homelessness has been industrialization and the congregation of large populations in large metropolitan areas. And, and post that, this is just a really short synopsis, um, the, cut the, the pullback of... Um, asylum-based services for the mentally ill. And you had homelessness as a major labor issue in the early uh, 20th century, and that was basically as a result of industrialization. And then that continued on until without, I mean, that was basically the main cause of, in, of homelessness until the shutting down of asylums. And in that process, we basically threw the baby out with the bathwater. We threw homes and shelter out and we didn't replace that in an adequate way. So now a large part of the homeless population, um, other than folks who have come from poor families and don't have good education, but around 50% nationally are folks who have severe mental illness. So uh, the same holds true for Lawrence, Kansas. Um, Family Promise National was started over 30 years ago out of New Jersey. Um, the, the woman who started the program worked in Manhattan as a, um, as a marketing person and would have to pass homeless people all the time on her way to work. Um, so one day she just decided to take some action because it was driving her nuts to just walk past folks. She stopped and bought some food and gave it to this one woman that she frequently saw. And her name uh, is Millie. And Karen Olson, who's the founder of Family Promise, and Millie started visiting with each other, and they got to know each other. And so through that, Karen began to see, began to see that homelessness involved children as well and families, and that there wasn't an adequate response for the family unit that oftentimes kids or boys above the age of 14 had to go somewhere different, and that women and their girl children could stay in a different kind of shelter. So there was not an adequate response to family homelessness. And in, and in fact, uh, to this day, kind of remains the, um, the invisible side of homelessness. Um, in the last several point in time counts, um, some of the counting uh, has gone down for folks who are homeless. That, that has very strict rules on how you, it's an attempt every year to get a census of the homeless situation. But it goes, it, it has been going down some in areas of veterans and such. Some of that is the way homelessness is defined in that census, which is very, very limited. And so it often doesn't count families adequately because you can't just couch surf 
and be counted in that um, situation uh, on point and time count. Uh, so families um, often will couch surf or camp or stay in motels or stay with friends and family as much as they can until they've used up all those resources. Um, about 46% of the families we've served this year thus far have been doubled up before, so couch surfing. They've been staying with folks, and the rest of them have either been in other emergency shelters, camping at the lake, or living in a motel. So, um, so Karen Olson approached this problem by thinking, well, there's all these congregations of faith that are usually closed at night, these very large buildings. Let me approach them because their mission is such to reach out to those impoverished and in need of mercy and justice. So she did, and that's what started the very first Family Promise rotation. And that's kind of the foundational model of how we serve families locally around the country, is sheltering them safely a week at a time in various communities of faith. And in Lawrence, that includes about 35 different organizations, uh, interfaith communities. The Islamic Center is involved as a supporting congregation, as is Jewish Community Center, as are several businesses that have volunteers and join. So families can safely have a child-friendly, safe place to stay, warm place at night, as well as three meals a day. Now, our programs here have grown so much more because um, of the need here in town. We can talk about that some more later. But Sure, and your, your question was, a, was specifically about the history, the history in Lawrence? Yes. Um, well, I don't know as much about the history um, as as the two who preceded me just now, but uh, I, I was talking a little bit yesterday. Um, and I realized that we're talking about the past, and this is now kind of shifting into the future. But I was kind of talking about our current situation with emergency shelter, um, with the cold weather, and trying to figure out if um, that was something that had existed in the past. And both of the two of you might be aware of that. That at one point there was sort of an emergency shelter protocol, which is very similar actually to the family promise model, which was something that I, I didn't know, and that, that it existed previously with the the, um, the the prior, prior the downtown, and when there's the downtown shelter also. Um, so a lot of that historical information isn't stuff that I'm aware of. I am a, a very young. I'm basically a child. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, so, so, that, so that was interesting for me to hear, and it does kind of harken back to what Matthew was saying about how you know, hearing about how, you know, once upon a time there was emergency sheltering of the homeless population in um, in churches, uh, which is exactly now what we're back to trying to put together. So the idea that you know things really haven't changed seemingly, um, it would be nice if that system had become more organized and structured, um, so that we wouldn't kind of be scrambling in the present. But I did think that, that was interesting. Yeah, it sounds like what we're doing now is something. It's not. It's not new. It's something people have done many, many times before. Um, and I am interested to hear what Dana, what you have to say about about that whole model. Obviously, because you know more about about that than most. So um, that's really all I have to add as far as like a historical perspective. Leah, do you have, do you have anything? Um, I mean, I, I, I just think that, um, yeah, it really hasn't changed that much. Obviously, numbers have increased, and like visibility and community concern has increased, but the actual issue isn't a new thing at all. 
when when we started the beginnings of opening up in Lourdes, <coughs> excuse me, our founder uh, Joe Wrights was an ethics professor, actually business ethics up at KU, retired, was doing a stint at what was then the Leo Center, then is now Heartland Community Health. Um, and that's where he first realized or heard or had, had his eyes opened to the fact that there are families that are homeless. And so he started researching models around the country of how to effectively deal with homelessness in terms of the family and children. Um, landed on Family Promise, visited several affiliates around the country, got them to come here and do an assessment of the need, and that's how we, that's how we started with a small group of about 15 donors and, and uh, excited individuals to start opening, and, and we opened in 2008. So the need is huge. This year, this year we've had, I just ran the numbers as of just about an hour ago, we've, we've received 373 families calling us this year in need of our services. That's a call people don't make if things aren't rather dire. So um, we average about 300 new families calling each year. So this is a high watermark for us in terms of the need. Um, and it's pretty frightening. About 50% of the people we serve every year are under the age of five. One thing that has changed, I think, over the years regarding homelessness are who are the primary service providers. Historically, it was the faith-based community who provided most of the social services across the Western world. Historically, were the churches uh, who who took people in, who sheltered people, and things like that. Since the modern era, with industrialization and the specialization of the workforce, we've created a more robust uh, system of social services. And as the labor force has specialized, we as a society have basically said, "Well, it's this is a specialized skill, specialized labor, and we're." We're, we assume that we're funding those to provide the service. And the general population who formerly would have been going to church and would have been involved in their church and would have been more involved with caring for their local community has pulled back. So the, the major difference is that whereas before there was, a, there was a much more integrated community of care that was distributed throughout the general population, predominantly through their church, because most people were churchgoers, Today we have a very highly specialized labor force and highly specialized service provision, and the distribution of care has fallen away from the faith-based community and away from the general population as in place in the hands of specific specialized organizations. That's a huge shift. That's not only a huge shift in relation to where care comes from, but it's a huge shift in relation to how people get information about what's going on in their community. And the general population who would, more, who would traditionally have a more hands-on involvement, which provided them information about who, what families were doing poorly, what families needed help, they don't have that information anymore because they don't have that direct contact. And that is a huge shift that's happened, and it's historically has happened in a pretty short period of time. It's happened in over about 100 years. So that, that is something that we're not really addressing as, as a society because with that shift, we have not realized an equitable distribution of the resources that are necessary to provide that kind of care. Um, 
and if we're going to continue on with a highly specialized society, we have to address and acknowledge that. I, I personally think there are huge problems with that, uh, but um, just in relation to illustrating the purview of the land today. That's kind of a big piece that needs to be addressed. I can speak to that, Matthew, and thank you very much. The, the family promise model works because so many volunteer and are involved in that and connection. It rebuilds the connection with families, both for the volunteer perspective and for those who are being served. Because um, from a volunteer perspective, they enter into the relationship. Um, they're just there to offer just beautiful, grace-filled hospitality, nothing else. Um, but our budget is built with three-quarters of a million dollars is given by volunteer don donated labor and time. There's no way we could raise that kind of money for specialized services like Matthew was saying. So the bulk of the heavy lifting working with families in Lawrence in the Family Promise model is volunteers who sit around the table, get to know the families, share taco salad, share a bowl of chili, and visit and get to know each other. And, and this has a huge impact on those who are served. They're seen, they're respected, they're treated with dignity, they're given a voice, a voice that matters, that somebody listens to. And from the volunteer's perspective, scales fall off their eyes. Suddenly, now they get to see real people. It's not homeless issue, it's oh my gosh, this is my friend John, this is my friend Sandy, this is my friend, and then they're precious kids. And so it gives homelessness a face. Um, and then people can, from that new eyesight, go and do many more remarkable things in our community. So I'm really pleased about the church's response through the Family Promise model and how it breaks down barriers with folks. Um, I don't have that much else to add, and, and you might have another question, but I mean, all, all of us who are here um, were involved in this community conversation about homelessness, which we hosted in this very building, Lawrence Public Library. Um, and and that was, you know, when we were planning that, it went through a couple different iterations before it finally landed on the idea of giving uh, members of the uh, people who had formerly been homeless or people who are, you know, have personal lived experience, just giving them a voice, just making the whole event just about them talking so that people can, yeah, make that connection and realize that they are um, residents of Douglas County. And one of the things that um, one of the panelists had said that stuck with me was just the, the fact that um, you know, homelessness is a community problem, um, a community issue, and so it's not, you know, what's the shelter going to do to fix it or what's Burton Ash going to do to fix it. It needs a, a community solution. Um, and so, yeah, the, the homelessness in Douglas County is the responsibility of everybody in Douglas County. So um, I'll pass it over to Leah. Just to um, follow up on something that Matthew and Dana talked about, um, the role of the faith community. Um, so in Lawrence, um, uh, churches, faith communities can open their doors, like in Family Promise, can open their doors to shelter people with no special permits needed. And um, the United Way and Burton Nash and Family Promise and Lawrence Community Shelter and our, all our partners are really encouraging the faith community to step up at this time to open their doors to our homeless friends and community members um, so that we don't have people sleeping out in the cold. There are people in our community who cannot access shelter for one reason or another. 
um, and we want to make sure that they stay safe. And um, there, there seems to be, maybe because of the specialization, there, this idea that it takes a special kind of person or you need a special kind of skill set um, or bag of tools to do this, but it's really actually very simple. Um, and the United Way is working with the faith community and uh, trying to recruit volunteers to offer a little bit of training, but really it is as simple as, opening your doors, providing a safe space, a friendly space um, to be in community with people who just need a safe, warm place to stay. So we really are encouraging people to step up, um, people that are interested in volunteering, um, to help overnight shifts in the churches and to churches themselves to open their doors and to contact the United Way for some tools to get that started. So just exactly as Leah was saying, the Lawrence Community Shelter reduced its capacity this year, which meant that there's less shelter space available. In order to address that issue, a local church has opened their door. The First United Methodist Church has opened their door to provide overnight shelter for folks who can't access the Lawrence Community Shelter. They are open now. They are open from 8 p.m. to 7 a.m., um, but they are struggling to find enough volunteers to run it. So we definitely need volunteers. If anyone is interested in volunteering, I'm going to plug this. Uh, please email lawrencewintershelter at outlook.com. That's lawrencewintershelter at outlook.com to contact with uh, their volunteer organizer. Uh, or you can contact any agency in the community and say, hey, I'd like to try to help and, and volunteer, and we can direct you in the same uh, direction. So there's the plug for that. <laughs> Yeah, w one thing I was curious about is uh, how much of the uh, homeless population is l in Lawrence is from Lawrence or the, the, the surrounding area, or is it people from other parts of, of the country? So this is a long-time conversation that's been going on, and I try to keep some stats on this. Just a roundabout number, I would say that the folks who are indigenous to Douglas County or this region in Kansas, because it's Midwest and it's kind of predominantly rural in a lot of ways, is around between 70 and 80 percent. So 70 to 80 percent of the folks who are homeless have a connection here. They're from here. They have family here. They were born here. They're from the county over. They're what have you. Um, the vast majority of people are from around here. There are folk. There are folks who come through, and there are, is a transient uh, national population, and there are folks who come from different parts of the state as well. But that is the minority. It's not necessarily super small. Twenty percent, twenty-five percent, but which is a sizable amount. But it, by and large, the folks that you're seeing are folks that are from here and have a connection here, and and not just a, a minor one. You know, the, they have a, a long-term historical connection to this area. Um, for Family Promise, it's a program. It's not just shelter, so you have to commit to doing some work on that. So the transient population, we've served a few of them for a few nights here and there, but usually they're, they're, they're not wanting to get involved in a program necessarily. They're just looking for some safe shelter. So they kind of self-select themselves out of our program when they hear that piece of it. But 92% of the families we served last year were from Douglas County, Lawrence area. Um, so the ones who were not were either like one or two of those families were transient, go on their way somewhere else, or 
they moved here for better schools or for a job that fell through and they found themselves in, in that situation of homelessness. Yeah, uh, why didn't why has the local? So I just I also wanted to f follow up on something uh, you said, Matthew. Why, why has the local community shelter decreased its capacity? The main and short answer is funding. the The larger answer for that is they want to provide a different kind of shelter model than had traditionally been provided, and that model requires a little more staffing in relation in ratio to the number of clients that you're serving. So in order to be to remain fidelitous to that standard, they would like to have the money to do it. Um, and they are going to continue to operate under that standard. So they didn't want to compromise their model of shelter services. And in, in, re in doing that, they couldn't hire the staff. So they reduced their capacity to maintain a certain ratio of guests to staff. And and really, I just want to reiterate that the motivation behind that was safety for the guests and residents that are living at the shelter. Um, there are families that are living there and young children and um, people that are homeless are no more violent than any other part of the population. But you do have a lot of people from different backgrounds and experiences and values and Right, um, all living together, and anybody who's ever had roommates knows that it's a challenge <laughs> in group living situations, no matter what your situation is. And then add on that that you're a family in crisis, um, any mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera. And so the staff really wanted to be able to provide adequate support and safety for the guests that are there, um, which is a, in many ways a driving factor. Um, and at the same time, they are very much committed to being part of the solution. They're no, by no means have turned their back on people that they are no longer able to shelter. Um, they have been a leader in this community trying to um, be an emergency shelter and lead prevention efforts. Um, and um, they are um, continuing to, you know, focus more on their mission while at the same time provide a comprehensive community response to the best of their ability. But to reiterate what was talked about before, this really is a community problem that needs a community solution. It's not the responsibility um, of any one agency in our community to, quote, solve the problem. I guess regarding, because I think you mentioned, uh, and Matthew, you mentioned, I think Dana, you also mentioned this too. Information is one of the, uh, and the, and the, I guess the sharing of information is one of the key issues, one of the key issues, or one of the obstacles in, in um, compelling people or, or uh, just uh, getting the word out to people that help is needed. So, um, and what sort of, uh, the sort of, People that are affected by by uh, by homelessness. What are some of the other and and I, I think also funding is is another another key issue. Are there other sort of um, obstacles that have gone or get that get in the way of, of compelling people and um, besides the sharing of information? The main obstacle I think is personal choice and lifestyle. 
it's one thing to get information in people's hands. And, and by doing that, you dispel stereotypes and dispel different types of beliefs that people may have that are false. The other part of that is that you can get that information in someone's hand, and they have to respond. They have to do something with it. And, and in a real way, that means, at least where we are today, making a sacrifice. Because we haven't created the mechanisms in our specialized labor force to redistribute the resources to places where they need them. And it's a predominantly proprietary-based society where people own things, and by owning them they, and they're possessing them, they monopolize them, and they monopolize those resources. So that means that they, as an individual, have to make a choice, a personal choice, to distribute those resources as a voluntary, willing behavior. And so the main obstacle, beyond just getting people informed and, and getting them up to speed and dispelling myths, is how do you facilitate for someone's willingness to willingly give over resources and redistribute uh, resources. And that doesn't mean, you know, selling your house and giving up all your possessions and becoming homeless too. But that may mean, you know, rather than buying a $60,000 car, buying a $25,000 car and, and providing $15,000 to a local agency. Or it may mean volunteering a whole lot more time. Um, so that's a challenge that's going to always exist. It's, the, it's, it's a challenge that is driven by systemic forces. It's also a challenge that's driven by uh, cultural uh, forces. And, you know, I, that's a historical problem for the human community. You know, how do you get someone to care? And how do you get someone to act upon that care? Yeah, that's so true, Matthew. And acting upon that care. And that's one thing that if someone is willing to volunteer through lawrencewintershelter.com at outlook.com or uh, volunteer at Lawrence Community Shelter or volunteer with Family Promise, um, that's, where, that's where change happens in the volunteer and change in patterns perhaps. Because then, like I said earlier, it's not an issue, it's a person. It's a, it's a relationship that's mm -hmm. built. It's uh, scales fall off the eyes, and and I'm I'm very pleased with the initial response across the country for the Family Promise National movement, um, in in with houses people of faith and focusing on that initially, and then broadening it out beyond that because it gives people a safe place to um, serve, and if they serve and their hearts are changed too, or as John Wesley would say, f feel strangely warmed, um, and I also believe he said, make as much money so you can give as much away as possible, um, which, you know, he's a, a good solid theologian that still speaks clearly today if we listen, um, but, but if the scales fall off of our own eyes, then we're more willing to see people on the street and talk to them and enter into that relationship. We're more willing to be part of the solution. Um, just this weekend, Matthew and I participated in an organization called Justice Matters. They were doing a research uh, um, event and invited Matthew and I and uh, Renee 
from the Lawrence Community Shelter and Rebecca from Tenants to Homeowners to talk about the situation of homelessness in our community. Justice Matters is predominantly a faith community that ha has been a, a great resource in our, in our town in raising the bar of awareness of all kinds of issues. This year they've adopted homelessness as one of their issues and they encouraged a lot of folks to come to the United Way convening a few weeks ago. So I'd heard from several folks who've touched base with me about that convening and they were recommended to go there from the Justice Matters group. So um, people are responding. This year seems remarkably refreshing to me in our community because so many people are talking about it and taking action. Unfortunately, some of that came from the, the cold water awareness that the shelter has to cut capacity. Oh my gosh, well, um, what else can we do? So out of a dark place is coming some good, uh, encouraging actions. I will say that I think stereotypes drive um, a lot of what prevents people from stepping up and getting involved. Um, just among my friends or family members, I'll hear, you know, these myths about a panhandler who's making $100,000 a year, right? Um, or um, about transient communities that are electing to be homeless and sort of applying that to all homeless people in our community. Well, they're making a choice to be homeless. Um, and if you, as Dana said, if you take the opportunity to actually make a human connection with somebody, then the reality quickly becomes transparent and it can quickly open people's hearts and minds. The panelists that um, spoke at the community conversation, you know, one became homeless due to domestic violence, which is very, very common. Um, the most common, uh, uh, the majority of women that are homeless were driven into homelessness because of violence in the home. Um, another panelist became homeless after a work injury, and then he could not go back to work, and things snowballed. Um, another became homeless because of a layoff at work, and again, things snowballed. Um, people that never could have imagined themselves in these situations, people like all of us sitting around this table today, and um, it, so, so I really encourage people to take that opportunity, even if it's volunteering for two hours, volunteering at Link or uh, volunteering at the Dare Drop-In Center, even two hours just to make a human connection, um, it can really start to break down our own internal barriers. I just want to follow that up because I, I definitely agree with the idea of this bias and this othering of the, the um, of anybody who is experiencing homelessness. But I think part of it that I, I think is is um, a, a big cause of that is actually um, people othering homeless uh, individuals to uh, actually protect themselves. Um, I think most people are capable of, of having that compassion, um, but if you tell yourself that they're homeless because of something they did or their fault, it really insulates yourself from taking responsibility that, that you have personally failed a member of your community. Um, so I think a lot of people intentionally avoid coming to that conclusion or avoid putting themselves in situations where they, they have to confront that as a means of, of protecting themselves and also protecting themselves from the reality that 
um, that they really aren't that far from, from being in that same position themselves. And then the other thing I'll say, which is a huge um, societal sort of thing, which um, so I guess this is like a philosophy podcast, so that might be good, <laughs> is just the idea that um, maybe looking like economically and across our society, if, if we were to house all these individuals who are experiencing homelessness, the amount that that would cost is actually probably less than what our society is currently paying to um, handle the problem in the way that it currently is. So why is it that as a society, this is the method, this is the approach that is sort of preferred? And I think that part of it um, comes from maybe uh, the idea of you know maintaining sort of a, I don't know, kind of a artificial caste system, or, or the idea of um, sort of the ruthlessness of, of capitalism. And then I will just end that statement without any, any explanation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are, before we started this podcast, we had a conversation that mentioned that the issue of homelessness is something that exists within the wider issue of poverty. And so the wider question is, why does poverty exist? Why has poverty existed within the human community? And I think this speaks to what you're talking about, Daniel, that there are other factors involved beyond the fact that people are uninformed that go into uh, creating the circumstance in, in which this person who is wealthy or who has affluence and can help makes a choice not to and has historically made the choice not to. In our current system, which is based upon competition, and this is not necessarily the fault of the folks who are out here competing, uh, we, we have to compete for jobs. And that's something that we all are basically um, subject to. Not everybody can compete. That's the fact. Someone who has a severe mental illness can't compete. But what we're not acknowledging is that this doesn't have to be the way our society works. There are all different kinds of models of, for society, and there have been different models that have played out throughout history. None of them got it, have got it right. There's never been a, a society, societal system or culture that has not had any poverty. Now, there have been some that have very few instances of poverty. There actually have been. There's always some outliers, in the, even in those cultures. But they've had you know 99% less poverty than we've had. And there have been that uh, societies in today's world, uh, in modern times, that have existed that way. That's starting to change a little bit as uh, austerity, for example, in Northern Europe and Scandinavia uh, has taken place. They're experiencing rises in things like homelessness and poverty. But the overall question is, is as a society, the things that we do, the things that we take for granted, like you have to compete for jobs, why do those exist? How do they come about? And why are we perpetuating them? And how do we effectively change them? Because something like capitalism and competition are not inherently parts of something like democracy and freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of religion, right? Those are not anywhere necessary for each other. So as a society, if we're going to become more aware of ourselves, I'm not sure that we can do that, but um, if we're going to, these are the types of things we have to think about. And in addition to what is right and what is wrong, what is, what is the moral precedent, what is ethical and what is not. Um, because the problem we face is that we may be able to make large changes, but if these fundamental structures of our society don't change, the vast majority of people who are subject to having to abide by them every day 
we're still in the same boat, right? We're still all competing. And so it takes a radical kind of generosity to, to, to counterbalance that, which is what we're finding out. The, the, the system of competition in which a corporation is seeking to gain billions of dollars worth of profit and bank on it, uh, which they have done and do. There are corporations that have billions of dollars just sitting in the bank. They're not going to redistribute that wealth. It takes a radical kind of generosity on the behalf of an individual to give away wealth in this type of system in order to overcome the imbalances in the distribution of resources that we're facing. So unless we actually deal with that, and actually, unless we actually deal with the actual societal structures that we're facing, none of these things are going to change. And the type of overwhelming, radical kind of acts that it will take for people to make a big difference are really unrealistic. And that's kind of when we look at poverty in Africa, when you look at the, the philosophers who are working in this field, uh, Mark Sen, Martha Nussbaum, Peter Singer, Thomas Polk, uh, Søren Kader, all these people, I, I agree with their ideas in a large way, but there's something they're not addressing. And, and that has to do with this issue that in the Western world, when you have huge monopolization of wealth because that's the name of the game, they're never going to redistribute that into Africa and Southeast Asia and South America. That's never going to happen. So we have to deal with that. The, and, and so part of this, I think, with the, in my own research in philosophy of poverty, is that we're also not addressing a kind of poverty that exists in the wealthy population, that there's a kind of poverty that people who are very wealthy experience. And um, it's not a lack of food, it's not a lack of shelter, but it's a lack of honest, um, Honesty about themselves, honesty about what about what material wealth is and what it can really afford them, honesty about you know their own um, hoarding issues, right? Uh, a lack of sympathy, lack of compassion, lack of connection, lack of experience with somebody, lack of um, uh, lack of experiences that would facilitate their ability to love someone who's not just in their immediate social, familial, or fraternal relationships. So I think there's actually a type of poverty that exists among the wealthy that we're not talking about, that we're not addressing. And until we do that, none of these issues are going to be solved. So the structural societal issues that we're facing, because it's predominantly the wealthy class who are driving those. And they're not going to have any impetus to change that unless, they, unless there's in a real a concerted effort to say, hey, you need to look at yourself. Just, let's forget about looking at someone else. First, we need to look at, you need to look at yourself and look at the way you're living. But again, this is nothing new. Aristotle was talking about this. All the sages have talked about this throughout history. Um, Jesus' main criticism is of the wealthy class. He, he, he criticizes the, the hypocr hypocrisy of the wealth. So I don't know if, it's, if we're ever going to do this, but that's kind of the problem we're facing, I think, as, a, as an overall society. It, or, yeah. Just a little bit on that. Uh, crossing the road or crossing the barriers or crossing whatever our, our own personal boundaries are. Um, Matthew mentioned um, that's when oftentimes we don't even see the barriers or see the roads because we've isolated ourselves. So that poverty of spirit is kind of how I would summarize what Matthew was talking about a little bit. And, and, and that, that has to happen on a, on a cultural level, on a, on a community level. 
I'll tell you a personal story. I'm not a philosopher, but I have. I had a time where my my own scales fell off. Well, actually, let me speak candidly. That happens every day working with the folks we we serve because they have so much to teach us, and we we actually, as a culture in our family promise of Lawrence, do lessons learned with every family who's come through, so we can serve better because they all have such such a beautiful story to tell that shows how we could have done something different or better, but. My scale, my my recent scales falling off my own eyes story just happened this summer. Uh, Twitter version of this is I was in Dylan's shopping with my cart, and a woman was stocking shelves on her knees on the bottom, on the bottom shelf, and she, oh excuse me, excuse me, no no you're fine. She goes, oh these old knees, I, I, and she pulls pulls herself up, and she said, I'm 60, and boy my body just doesn't work like it is anymore. Well. I'm 62, and I was training last summer for a, a hike on the Colorado Trail. And this woman is my peer, was born the same time. We, we actually found out we were only about 30 days apart, in, in, but miles and miles apart in life experience, and it's showing in her body physically versus my body physically. So I will never forget this woman. I don't know her name, but she has changed my She's helped me see. She's changed. She's helped me have my own scales fall off of the privilege of basic health care and nutrition and a safe place to live. I don't know her story. I just know she had trouble getting up from stocking shelves at Dylan's. I think that that's sort of what I was asking at the beginning is, is what sort of brought you to uh, do the work that you do um, and the sort of motivations that that uh, that you carry with you to keep doing what you're doing, um, because in part we uh, we don't just need. I think as as Michael and I know, and I, I think Matthew alluded to, um, argument alone doesn't get us to uh, where we are. Uh, just having a good argument for something, or knowing um, or believing in something uh, as being right, and and. Uh, believing in something as being wrong is not enough to compel people to do what they do. Um, they need life experiences. They need um, firsthand experiences about uh, the, the sort of issues that they find themselves in. And um, and I think that's something that we're finding more more and more the case, right? It, it's as I think we were discussing before the podcast is. Um, as philosophers, we would like it to be the case, right? That people will listen to our arguments and uh, read our dissertations and, and be like, yes, we should we should act in that way. We should, I believe in, um, but that's they can they can certainly say that they agree with the position, um, but doing and acting on it is quite a different thing, and we need something quite uh, or something like desire and attitude to to change to bring us to changing and and, um, and responding to the ills of our communities. Um, and I think as, as I think Daniel and Matthew alluded to, a lot of, it seems like a lot of the brunt of, of uh, the responsibility is placed on middle class people to responding to the homeless, homeless situation. And that's, I think many of those people are, are happy to respond. Um, but they are themselves limited uh, financially and, and I think time-wise. And so it seems that there's some unfair unfairness there involved in just who exactly is responding to the, 
to the situation. Um, before we go, I would like to give each and each one of you the sort of last few minutes to um, your last words uh, for today. Sure, I'll, I'll say some more silly stuff. Um, Matthew was talking about how, and I, I'm glad that I had a chance to, uh, to to say the last thing I did before Matthew left because I knew that he was gonna he would grab onto it and say a bunch of re really intelligent things. Um, but he was talking just about how like you know the the game is kind of rigged and um, like our society is set up to um, to end up like this. You know the way our, our systems are set up, this is the end result that just naturally occurs from that system. Um, and that I think a, a perfect example of this or something which I think is, is a great analogy or a great experience that anybody can have and most people probably have had is, is the board game Monopoly, which was developed in the Depression and is a terrible, terrible board game. Everybody's probably played it at least once, but I think it really does a good job of, of showing how our systems work, where um, the goal of the game is for one of the four participants to have all of the money and the other three to have no money at all and end up in jail and end up just wandering the streets penniless and getting further and further in debt, um, which sounds like a great analogy, but what I think is even more uh, impactful is the actual experience you have because the game takes forever and by the end you're exhausted and you hate everybody that you're playing with. Um, and so I think you know it's when you look at the rules of the game, eventually you have to change some of those rules Otherwise, no matter who you throw into the, the mix to play the game, the, the outcome is the same because somebody will step up to win under the, the, um, how the rules are written out. Um, so I, I think you know, homelessness, unlike a lot of issues that people we have in society that um, have really complicated, maybe even unsolved um, solutions, like we don't know how to uh, we, we don't have a, a cure for cancer. Uh, like We actually know what cures homelessness, but s society as a whole just isn't willing to actually do those things, which is kind of strange to think like we have the cure, but, but, but we, you know, housing and jobs that pay well and affordable health care, things like that. So we have all those things. I mean, we, we know what they are. We've identified them, um, but the, the game isn't, isn't played that way. Before you uh, say, say anything, Leah, the structural uh, issue, I think, is something that we do plan on having a discussion about uh, fairly soon. So, uh, yeah, we, it is already in the talks, and, and hopefully we'll have that in the, in the coming months. So we're going to leave it, I think, those concerns to the, to the side for the moment, but I think it deserves a, a greater focus, which we're, we plan on giving it uh, fairly soon. Um, so, um, I think I want to end on two, two things. Um, one is that I understand that this issue can seem very overwhelming. Um, I think we are bombarded with problems on a daily basis, um, some of us ex can experience a sort of compassion fatigue. I know that there are a lot of issues and causes that I care deeply about. And when I'm trying to parse out, okay, how much time can I volunteer? How much money can I donate? The list of things that I care about and see a great urgency in is quite long. <laughs> and um, what we have to resist is 
the inclination to give up because of that overwhelm. Um, one thing that sticks out in my mind is uh, a couple years ago, there was an article with an infographic that showed that actually homelessness in the US could be solved, could be eradicated with the cost, um, just a little bit less than the cost of Americans spend on Christmas decorations every year. And um, when you think about it that way, <laughs> um, it, it it actually just takes a lot, all of us, a lot of us doing a little bit, right? It doesn't take um, all of us here donating all of our money or giving all of our time, just a little bit. Think about what you spent in Christmas decorations this year or in, uh, in gifts for your family. Is it possible to redirect that? Um, to, to truly show compassion for our community, to truly leave a legacy and make a difference, to, to solve a problem that we all care about. Um, and it, the last thing that I want to uh, just leave on is please take the opportunity again to, uh, to have a personal relationship with somebody who is experiencing homelessness or who has in the past. When I was in San Diego, I worked as a community organizer for the Prop 8 campaign, which was um, uh, when there was going to be a vote around legalizing same-sex marriage. And um, we realized, uh, you know, at, at a certain point that we were giving people facts and data and logical arguments and that people weren't really changing their minds. Um, and so as organizers, as a movement, we did a different strategy. We stopped giving people all the facts and statistics. And instead, we just had members of the LGBTQ community start knocking on doors and telling our stories. Hi, I'm Leah, and I'm your neighbor, and I'm queer. This is my story. This is my family. This is how this issue impacts me personally. And that's where we started to really see hearts and minds change. Um, and I think the same thing holds true here. There's a great deal of prejudice against people living in poverty, people experiencing homelessness. Um, and if you find in your heart that you have any, um, any of that, um, take an opportunity just to have a human conversation with somebody. And um, if you are somebody who has experienced homelessness or have family members, if you have a lived experience and you feel like you're in a place to share that, I encourage you to do so. It's why I'm transparent about my father, about the challenges that my family has experienced. Um, because I am an example of somebody that this community invested in as a child through social services, and I beat the odds because of the investment in uh, our community made in me. And that's what happens when, when you invest in people, when we take care of the children who are living in poverty so that they can grow up, be successful, and ultimately stop the cycle of poverty. Thank you. That's awesome, Leah. Thank you. And I just echo that. Um, cross the barrier. Cross our own boundaries. Cross our own walls that we've built to keep ourselves safe and volunteer and connect. Connection with people that are outside of our inner circle is very scary 
and gets people feeling very vulnerable, and it's so 100% worth it. Because, But you've got to be willing to, to have the courage to cross over that wall, that barrier. And, and then your own scales will fall off your eyes. Um, <laughs> by doing that, you're not only addressing the situation of homelessness, you're addressing the poverty in our own heart or our own biases or our own prejudices. And you come face to face with them. You have to. And, and self-examination is something that doesn't come easy for any of us human beings. Critical evaluation of ourselves does not come easily. It's quite easy, it's much easier to talk about things from a righteous perspective. It's much different to cross over a barrier and a bridge and a wall and look into the eyes of another human being and listen to their stories and validate their stories because they're all beautiful. I think, um, when, when I think of what parents that we work with have to go through and all the hurdles they have to jump through in order to get those basic supports, Leah, that you talked about, it is absolutely remarkable. The tenacity and the, fer the ferocious love of these parents, mostly single moms, 75% of the families we serve are single parent households. It's just remarkable. And, and they're doing it for their kids. Um, so volunteers who are willing to cross over their, those roads and have their own eyes and hearts changed makes that connection. And human connection is what makes all the difference in the world. Well, thank you all for joining us today. Um, it, hopefully this, this uh, compels a number of people, maybe just one or two people at the, that, that, would, be, that would be great on its own. Um, but Obviously, we there, we can spend a great deal more time on this on this conversation and and, and this issue, um, and the and the and just talking about the people themselves. Um, but before we go, I just want to plug again. I think uh, if I, please correct me if I have this wrong, but it's Lawrence Winter Shelter at Outlook dot com, um, and please. If you if you have time and if you can afford to share anything, uh, please. Reach out to uh, to them and uh, and uh, help help with uh, those who are most in need. Uh, again, thank thank you everyone for joining us and thank you for listening.